0: This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: of rare antiquities episode 32 today we'll be discussing that film with samuel l jackson and bruce willis no not that one no not that one either <laughs> we're going back to the year 2000 and the film unbreakable directed by m night Shyamalan. i am your host jeff and i am your breakable co-host harry you are a very breakable man both in body and spirit (laughs) I break other people's (laughs) spirits. That is true. You're the breaker, not unbreakable. Yes. The unbankable, but the breakable. (laughs) The the unbankable. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) They should make that. The Expendables
0: now. They should not be the Expendables because they're just too old. They're on the
1: Unbankables. (laughs) Just the Unbankables. Just a bunch of old fucking fat dudes sitting around. There's like a gun in the corner, but that's pretty much it. I told you, it's that poker story. Arnie, Sly, Bruce Willis. Make it happen. The Unbankables. I'd watch it. (laughs) watch it then we could discuss it on the show that'd be great i want to film it on the show (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure we could get at least two of those three guys on the show no doubt about it yeah not bruce willis though. he just wants too much money so welcome back to the show man it's going to be recording again for sure yes a nice little break but good to be back Mm -hmm. we're going to do unbreakable today from uh, the year 2000 let's reminisce a little bit and go back to the year 2000 what do you remember from that time when this movie was ready for release?
0: Well, I was still partying like it was 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Not much else. No. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> out drunk. I don't remember. blackout what. drunk. Anything.
0: It was like Bender when he kept going to those parties and he kept getting yeah. fatter and fatter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I remember seeing this movie again. We're, we were working at the theater, I believe, still. I have a vague memory of seeing this in the theater. I doubt I would have missed it back then, especially because Bruce Willis didn't really think too much like uh, as a recognizable director of M Night Shyamalan. I know he did 6 cents before this and I think this is his next kind of more recognizable hit after that. So yeah, I remember seeing it and then I remember enjoying it. I do believe I own this on home video and I have not seen it except for maybe one time since I bought it on DVD way back when, and I'm, I'm not even sure
1: if that's the case. So it was a good long while since I had seen this one. Yeah, this was, in fact, his direct follow-up to The Sixth Sense. This is his next film here. I mean, I remember, you know, back in the day, I was a, I was a pretty big fan of The Sixth Sense. You know, obviously, it had a lot of hype around it. And I just remember the trailer for this movie. I really loved the trailer for Unbreakable. So I was pretty excited just based on that. Did it still
0: um, take you six weeks to download it like Phantom Menace?
1: Yeah, almost. Yeah. (laughs) I really love the trailer. I just actually watched it on YouTube before the show here. It's a good teaser. It still kind of holds up. You know, some teasers from that time, the late 90s, early 2000s, some of them don't quite hold up as modern trailers, but it's still uh, still a pretty good one. And I'm a big fan of movie trailers. I don't know about you, but... uh, Well, of course. One of the better parts of the movie. Yeah, yeah.
0: Unfortunately, you know, like, it don't want to get too sidetracked. I remember fairly recently Adam Driver said serendipitous that it's happening this week as Star Wars Mm -hmm. Episode Eight trailer is supposed to debut at Celebration in a couple of days from now, and Adam Driver a few weeks ago or last month or something said he wished that there were no movie trailers at all for the movie, and I'm kind of now, even though I love movie trailers, I kind of feel the same way. I wish that things were more like a very 20, 30 second preview, and that's it, because... I find trailers still, even if they don't spoil a movie now, they just set up too much expectations for movies. And I think that's an unfortunate reality for people today. But I mean, they have to be there to get the butts in the seats and the money for the big wigs and the studios. So, but kind of wish the trailers yeah. were, it'd be a teaser, a 30
1: second teaser, and that'd be it. Yeah, it's a marketing necessity, I guess. I, I see what you're saying. There are trailers out there that do spoil a lot, but even the ones that don't, sometimes they just show things that you would have rather seen for the first time yeah. in the film yeah
0: well, just like you know,
1: sure. going back to <laughs> Phantom Menace, you know, Darth Maul, double-bladed lightsaber. Imagine
0: that was left for a surprise for the movie. Yeah,
1: that would have been pretty cool. That would have been pretty cool. <laughs> but that being said, there is something to not, again, to get too off track, but fuck it, we're doing it. There is something to be said for the building of excitement. So when you see some of the hints of the stuff you're going to see, that's awesome. Like that feeling of seeing Darth Maul with the double-bladed lightsaber in that trailer and then living with that excitement for so many... Months was also kind of special as well. So, I guess the flip side of that is you kind of get to live in some of that excitement for a lot longer because of a well-made trailer. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of split. You get the joy of that anticipation, which is longer than the
0: movie experience. Yeah. But then the impact of the movie may not be as much for you after the fact for the rest of your life. So, I don't know.
1: I guess you can make the argument either way, but anyway. Uh, that,
0: that's what I wish. I just wish that maybe episode 8 or episode 9 would just say, okay, we're going to be experimental. No trailers. No nothing. Just go see yeah.
1: it. It's not like they really need to show case the fact that star wars episode eight is coming out that could be the teaser star wars the last jedi yeah Give us your money and that's it. And you have Jar Jar is the cashier. You're the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, say? yeah. He's just got. His, he's not even saying. He just has, has his hand out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, more, more. <laughs> Put the Benjamins here, mofos. Right here. Yes. Anyway, so Breakable. back to Unbreakable. <laughs> so I was pretty excited about this. It looked from the teas. You don't get a whole lot of information. It. I just like the feel of it. That's kind of my memories there. But uh, let's look at some of the history here. So it did come out uh, November 22nd, year 2000. Opened on uh, 2,700 screens, fairly wide release. This was made in a budget of $75 million approximately. Uh, the domestic gross was approximately $95 million, which, you know, while it sounds like a modest profit, you know, you take into account marketing and budget and all of that, then, uh, you know, it's not exactly a smash hit. And especially considering it followed The Sixth Sense from only a year prior. The Sixth Sense, for example, was made on a budget of $40 million, and it brought in a box office of $293 million. So The Sixth Sense was a smash hit, on a shoestring budget. And this just did not quite live up to the commercial success of the prior film. And in my opinion, this is a better movie. But, you know, so that's kind of the uh, the context around that. M. Night Shyamalan's a fairly polarizing figure, I feel. Harry, what are your thoughts on this guy and, you know, the trajectory of his career?
0: Well, the unfortunate reality is, is that he sometimes just feels like a one-trick pony, like he has a certain style, a certain, and his topics are of a certain substance and a Stuck in a certain genre with, you know, the kind of like the mystery thriller with the twist ending. And that's kind of the bulk of his movies. I know he's done a few other things, but his latest one, Split, which I haven't seen and I do want to see because it seems to have gotten favorable reviews. I heard there's another twist ending in that that's supposed to blow people's minds. So the problem with that is then that's all you expect. So you're on yeah. guard, and we've talked about this before, you're just looking for it, you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it, and then the surprise really isn't that much of a surprise at the end, because it's like, well, kind of knew something like this was going to happen. Right. So yeah. with the Unbreakable being his kind of his second foray into this type of filmmaking i guess you know we'll talk about it the twist at the end is still fairly effective but Mm. with respect to his whole body of work i feel that he's just shoehorned himself into one type of genre with that twist ending and it's just his movies have gotten less effective and less effective and less effective as time has gone on
1: i'll agree with you on on the twist ending sort of in general where i feel almost every movie now Feels like it's got to have some kind of twist, whether it's right at the end or at some point early in the third act. You know, you see it coming and they telegraph the whole thing so you know what's coming. And they don't do it with any skill. So, you know, you see it a mile away. I mean, Unbreakable... I feel the twist isn't really much of a twist. It's just more something you didn't see coming. It didn't like kind of go back on itself. And The Sixth Sense, definitely a twist ending and handled in a very uh, sensible way, skillful way so that it it worked. But, you know, as it progressed from there, yeah, he kind of got shoehorned into that a little bit. And the movies were just a kind of low quality. I mean, I... I, Yeah, I
0: I think after Signs, like I do still enjoy Signs, which I think is his next one after this one. After that, it's just... It's uh, all downhill, baby. It's all downhill, yeah. And even Signs, I feel that the kind of the twist ending or revelation at the end about their destiny, Mm -hmm. uh, characters' destinies and what they're supposed to do, it's not effective at all. But I enjoyed the rest of the movie.
1: I know, I agree. I like Signs, and I wish it was better. I I want to like it more. But yeah, yeah, you're right. The Destiny thing wasn't handled all that well, but there's so much good about it pardon the pun it showed signs of his career kind of turning the wrong direction because the village was the follow-up there and i actually like a lot about that film as well but the twist there was just garbage and then you know the happening was just terrible top to bottom you know forget i don't know if it had a twist ending at all i don't think it did but it was just a shitty movie the twist Uh, is that mark Wahlberg still got a role in hollywood what a twist (laughs) mark Wahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) Even after being a racist mofo, still gets lots of play. Anyway, that's uh, that's the opening thoughts on that. We'll we'll talk a little bit about perhaps some twist endings later and come back to Split as well if uh, you're interested in spoilers. Okay, any other opening thoughts? No, maybe, I don't know. How about the greedy, lazy one himself? Who, uh, Bruce? Yeah, old Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured we could talk a little bit about Bruce's performance as we kind of go through film. Definitely got lots to say okay. about Mr. Bruce Willis. So let's come to that as we talk to the film. All right, Unbreakable. A young woman rests in the break room of a department store with her newborn. It's 1961, and I guess they haven't invented delivery rooms yet. The baby's crying, but not to worry. A nice doctor happens to be shopping on his lunch break and swings by to check things out. He asks the mother if the child has a name yet. It's Elijah. He wants to take a look, and everything seems to be going just fine until we see the look on the doctor's face. Something's happened here. The baby's arms and legs are broken, and that baby is really fragile, like, uh, I don't know, something really breakable. Anyway, fast forward to present day. It's a nice day for a train ride, especially if you're a bit of a creep and a pretty lady with a stomach tattoo decides to sit next to you. Said creep shuffles off his wedding ring and introduces himself as David Dunn, but she's not giving up any peanut butter to David's jam. She awkwardly finds another seat, but something seems very wrong. The train is picking up speed, and everyone is racing to look out the windows on the other side of the train. Then, blackness. David wakes up in the hospital. It's quiet, calm, and he seems to be okay. A doctor asks him some questions. How's your heart? Any allergies? Yada, yada, yada. And oh yeah, how the fuck did you just walk away from that train crash? His train derailed and struck another train. Each and every person on board died a horrible death, and David doesn't have a single scratch. Seems he's pretty sturdy, almost unbendable or breakless or something. David's wife and son are there to pick him up and we get a little picture into the domestic situation. Seems David has been taking the train back from New York where he had taken a job interview. He doesn't think he got it, but he's still going to move there, alone, without the wife and kid. Seems like a pretty broken relationship. At the train crash victim memorial, David looks on as hundreds of families mourn their loved ones. It's a pretty somber affair, all those shattered families, the crying, the praying. And the one point of interest is a note placed under the windshield wiper of David's car printed on the front is simply the title limited edition and handwritten on the back is the question have you ever been sick the answer to that question is no he never has according to his boss at work he's never taken a sick day his wife can't recall him ever having so much as a cough or a runny nose that immune system must be unsickable (laughs) well let's check back in with elijah the baby with all the brittle bones It's the 70s now, and Elijah is a young boy, holed up in his apartment, his arm in a sling, moping as kids play outside in the playground across the street. His mother is talking all about fate and God and how his body might be fragile, but his spirit needs to be strong. Strong like something that doesn't break all the time. Elijah isn't having it, though. The kids even have a nickname for him. They call him Mr. Glass. But Mom is a present for him. It's nicely gift-wrapped and is the perfect antidote to Elijah's depression. Only problem is it's outside on the park bench and he'll have to overcome his fragility to collect. He musters up the courage to get out there and inside the box is a comic book. And another one will be waiting for him out here, every time he decides to come out. And what a great mom. It's almost like a superhero origin story with a mom like that. Back with Elijah, but it's present day now. He's showing a piece of art to a potential buyer. It's the original artwork from the comic book cover we saw him with as a kid. But this isn't kid stuff. Elijah explains the ins and outs of the art. How the realistic depiction of the characters is unique for the time period. The difference in proportions that communicate the heroism and villainy. This is vintage and he's made a sale until it becomes clear that this rich douchebag is just buying an expensive toys for his four-year-old son jeb elijah's taking none of that shit and this asshole better gtf over before he gets a glass cane up his ass then david dunn shows up with his son see he got a note written on this art gallery stationery asking him if he has ever been sick so what gives Elijah sits him down and tells him of his theory. See, he's studied comic books his entire life, what with being in the hospital pretty much all the time. He believes that comic books are the last surviving form of a picture-driven storytelling tradition that passed down tales of humans with extraordinary abilities who are here to protect the weak. So he's monitored all the disasters in the city recently. The plane crash, the hotel fire, the train disaster, waiting for the lone survivor who was miraculously unharmed. Elijah describes his own condition, osteogenesis imperfect, which causes his bones to be incredibly brittle. His theory is that if he is so breakable, then there must be someone else at the other end of the spectrum. Someone strong. Someone unshatterable or something. Someone who never gets sick, never gets hurt. Someone those stories are about. Someone like David. But David tells him he has been hurt in a car accident in high school that ended his promising football career. So then David's like, okay then, we'll just back away slowly now. Thanks for the glass of water and we'll see you never. Crazy glass bones, dude. But Elijah persists. He shows up at the local college football stadium where David works as a security guard. Asks more questions, provides more logic. David even gets a vision of a guy in a camo jacket with a gun tucked in his pants. Hardly conclusive proof, but it's not like Elijah's some weird raving terrorist lunatic, like a supervillain or anything. Elijah asks one more thing In that car accident, was anyone else in the car? And David tells him yes his future wife, Audrey. Instead of taking in the game, Elijah follows a camo jacket guy, but with the brittle bones and cane and all, he barely keeps up and takes a tumble down some concrete stairs to the subway station, just in time to see camo jacket guy leap over the turnstile, revealing a gun tucked in his pants, just as David envisioned. Elijah's fucked up. No, seriously, he has all of the injuries, including something called a spiral fracture of his leg. He's going to be cruising Professor X style for a long time. He tells the doctor that all the kids called him Mr. Glass. He goes to see a physical therapist to help with his recovery. And oh, look at that. It's Audrey Dunn, David's wife. He probes for info, trying to seem inconspicuous, and finds out that David was a star football player, but all that ended because of the car crash. And it's a good thing, too, because she hates football. All those broken bones and torn tendons, it's the exact opposite of what she does. She sees through his ruse, though, and uncovers his theory about David. In the meantime, David gets called away from work. His son, Joseph, got into a fight at school. He wanted to take on some bullies. He might have superpowers like his old man. Spoiler alert, he totally does not have superpowers. But while at the school, the nurse reminisces This is about a time when David, when he was about Joseph's age, got in some trouble around the pool and almost drowned. David is starting to sound a little more human. Almost drowned in the pool, messed up in a car accident. Even a lame superhero like Aquaman or that guy who shoots green arrows or whatever would be tougher than that. Audrey tells David that Elijah came to see her that day, and he agrees that the dude is seriously nutty. But before anyone can call the police or anything, their son joins them in the kitchen. Hey guys, how's it going? Oh, by the way, I'm just going to shoot dad here with this loaded revolver, okay? He'll totally be fine, though, because he's unhurtable or breakproof or something. No, seriously, it'll be fine, and it'll prove that the broken bones guy with the crazy afro is totally. totally. Totally normal, and telling the truth that David's a goddamn superhero. Well, if David's superpowers are stern parenting and bluffing like a motherfucker, he performs here in spades. David tells Elijah to go kick rocks. Seriously, enough with the superhero shit. He takes his wife out on a date, maybe they can start over, but something's wrong. Something's been wrong for years. And David maybe realizes that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. After the date, he calls Elijah and admits that he was never injured in that car accident. He's never been injured, like ever. And now he realizes that something has been missing in his life all along. Elijah tells him to go someplace where people are and let nature take its course. David goes to the train station, all the people coming and going. And every so often he gets a flash of someone doing something bad. Some trivial, some not. But how to choose who to help, who gets saved and who was left to suffer. David sees the janitor invading a home and killing a man who lives there, or lived there. That's the one. David follows the janitor back to the house, which is in disarray. He's too late to save the man he saw in his vision, but he's still in time to rescue the kids. He tussles with the intruder, and after taking a plunge in the pool and almost drowning, he puts the Roddy Piper chokehold on the bad guy And while it might not exactly be happily ever after. It's not too shabby for his first hero outing. With David now awake to his role in the world, his family life can fall into place. The end. Oh, wait. There's still Elijah to thank. At the art gallery, Elijah is hosting a big exhibition, and it looks like things are going pretty well for him, too. And this is the part where they shake hands, and live happily ever after. The end. Except David gets a vision. He sees Elijah at the airport when the plane exploded. Sees him at the hotel bar when an employee tells him what a death trap the place would be if a fire broke out. And finally, getting out of the conductor car of the train David was on at the beginning, Elijah was responsible for all of it. In his search to find the hero, he had become the villain, and he should have known because the kids called him Mr. Glass. And now all the kids will call David Mr. Indestructible Guy or Uninjurable. Breakless? Oh, no, no, no. I got it. Break free. Now <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. The end. <laughs> so uh, that's Unbreakable. So what are your initial thoughts? Oh, they could have called him Bouncy. <laughs> God damn it, I didn't think of that. <laughs> sitting here for like an hour and a half trying to figure out names.
0: <laughs> good synopsis. <laughs> Maybe me laugh a few times, that's good. On paper, very good story, good build-up. It's a superhero movie, but it's a radically different one from all the other superhero movies that were out at the time, from the past. I enjoy the build up on paper for sure and then the twist at the end I feel is because you've almost described the whole movie is very effective Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots so, to take in there, lots to
1: enjoy. So let's go in uh, scene by scene as we do. Uh, and I always forget—you know—I've seen the movie quite a few times. It's been—it had been a few years since I'd seen it before watching it for the show today. But the opening scene of the mother in the—you know—in the department store break room or whatever—I always forget that the movie opens this way.
0: It's a very effective uh, and, scene.
1: Well, yeah. Let's talk about it a little bit. So, what are the things that stand out for you in this opening? Her performance. Number
0: one, the doctor's performance, and it's heartbreaking. It pulls you right in, establishing Elijah as a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. And in any kind of movie, whether it's a superhero movie or not, when we find out later he is a villain, that becomes even more of a surprise and a shock because of how effective he was drawn out from the beginning. And I really think that the mother here and the doctor here just sell this entire scene it's very well directed very well acted and tugs at your heart because you feel for
1: this baby yeah it's very tragic for sure so the situation alone you definitely feel for for the guy and it's you know it's not like let's say you're watching x-men the first x-men where you see magneto in a concentration camp and you feel for the guy because obviously you know how horrible it is but you know, he's the bad guy later. So because you know, he's a bad guy, it sort of tempers some of the sympathy you feel. But you know, if you don't know what this movie's about, none of that gets tempered. It's just a terrible tragedy that what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And you know, my favorite part about this was the doctor's performance, because it's all like that look on his face, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's like, he's trying to smile, but his eyes are like popping out of his head, like, holy fuck, what's going on here? And asking like the women's like, "Uh, it's like that ernie hudson i I've seen shit that'll turn you white, yeah, Look. exactly yeah." <laughs> <laughs> that looks. it's totally exactly what, yeah that's what he should have said he's like this shit like you you yeah you just turned me white It just turned you you laser black before right but also that some of the foreshadowing with because we we see a lot of the scene shot through the reflection in the mirror that'll kind of come back later a couple times but yeah i thought it was a, a very effective opening I thought it was great so then we cut to the train scene here where he's he's sitting there and then we get a feel it kind of looks like he's a bit of a douche because he sees the girl you know putting her bag above the in the overhead compartment there we see the, the tattoo on her stomach and he's just like struggling to get his wedding ring off so I don't know that the intention here was to make him look like kind of a dick more that you know his marriage is you know idea that the marriage is on the rocks but I think it kind of comes across as a bit of an asshole here oh well, of course yeah. like a sleaze bag right so yeah totally
0: yeah but what I actually liked about this scene here too is the camera perspective because mm-hmm. really how it's moving back and forth between the seats from a lower point of view and you realize realize. realize at the end of that whole conversation between bruce willis and that unknown lady is then then little girls like watching this whole thing and listening to the whole conversation then at the end you see her just kind of giving bruce willis the stare down
1: yeah exactly like like, even she knows he's being a creep yeah you fuck Seriously. I liked his line there where he's trying to flirt with her a bit and he's like, you know, are you looking for any male synchronized swimmers? I thought it was, you know, kind of funny. Good line. But yeah, she's not having any of his garbage there. You know, we get the idea that something's going on with this train. We cut to a shot of his kid watching TV and he sees that the train his dad is on and has been seriously fucked up. Huge, huge crash. Very difficult rescue effort. So we get an idea of the, the scope of This disaster just looks like a giant piece of garbage. And then we cut to the hospital as he wakes up in the emergency room. This scene here, uh, recut, it basically forms the original teaser for this film. And I was a little bit disappointed because I like how the scene plays out in the teaser. They cut a lot of the lines out for the film here. But everything's looking okay. I really like the perspective of how this film is shot. So we kind of have, like, Bruce Willis in the background with the Doctor, where the focus is in the foreground, which is sort of out of focus and blurry. You can see Doctors working on a patient. the other Yeah, the other surviving patient who's slowly dying. Yeah, Yeah. that was pretty cool. uh, Yeah, that was cool. I like how like the blood just starts seeping through. That's a skillfully masterful shot from a director's
0: point of view because you could see other things that are happening and you're not focused on it. You're focused on the conversation, but then you just realize how tragic and the scope of the accident that's happening that you find out that after like maybe a few minutes in the conversation that that person in the foreground is the lone survivor. And then after that point, then you see the blood seeping through and you go, fuck, he's not going to make it.
1: Yeah, very, very effective. And it's hard to sort of tell like it's one shot, and but he's, it, there's almost two stories happening in that one shot, and they both inform the other. It, it, it is very skillfully done, you know. It's nice to see some of that kind of you know originality and creativity in a movie shot. I mean, a, a lot of movies now I find shots are composed very well, but they're not composed with a lot of creativity to help tell the story or sell the atmosphere in any kind of subtle way. So, I mean, I love the doctor. You know, at first it's just the regular questions, but he becomes more incredulous. It's like, okay, where are we sitting? In the train, sitting next to the window, like yeah, you were in the passenger car. You know, he just didn't get it. And then he's like, "You don't have a scratch on you." And I really enjoyed that performance from the doctor. You know, only a couple of lines, and he's not in the movie at all past this point. But very effective, I thought there. And we still don't know what the fuck's going on, basically. So you know, he comes out, and again, as he as he comes into the hall after coming out, you know, be, basically being released. His son is there, his wife is there, and this is where we kind of get the first against domestic situation there. So. Did that work well for you at this point just to get the idea of what the relationship was like? Oh, yeah, extremely. Because, mm-hmm.
0: you know, the, obviously there's the bond because mother and the father with the son happy that he's and their history between husband and wife. She's glad that he's okay, but their relationship is so strained that they still cannot manage more than a very brief hug. Like it's mm-hmm. not close at all. And then they barely touch hands and then they walk away independently. So, yeah, very good scene.
1: Yeah, very good scene. So, you know, the next couple of scenes, like he goes to the memorial, you know, not, not a lot there. This is where he kind of sees the note in his windshield. Have you ever been sick? And it's what I find that M. Night liked to do in some of his earlier works is like every scene kind of leads to another question. And sometimes it's just well, that's the uh, MacGuffin.
0: He's set the MacGuffin yeah. right there. Right? He's planted it in that hospital scene and then it, it's like the Ark of the Covenant is, you know, that conversation just like in Raiders. They had that and then let's go. The Ark of the Covenant conversation in Raiders is just a simple node on the windshield here. Have you ever been sick?
1: Yeah, that's right. Which is, coincidentally, that's one of M. Night's favorite films, is right as the Lost Ark. But how can it not be? Because it's so good. Every scene kind of leads down to another layer, to another layer, and it kind of goes slowly. He goes to work. He asks the boss's assistant or secretary or whatever, you know, have I ever taken a sick day? He's trying to answer the question. Turns out, you know, no, he hasn't. Gets the raise, which I thought was kind of a funny aside. There's like, all right, yeah, you've never taken a sick day. Here's your raise. Asks his wife... I just, uh, yeah, so just yeah.
0: before we go, I just want to kind of talk about this, something that hit me when I was re-watching this movie, and I hadn't seen an M. Night movie in a while, but I, I remember the style. Everything is very monotone and one mm-hmm. like the way that conversation he had with his boss, for example. Everyone is just on a, and I don't know if it's, obviously it's intentional from the director, but it's like that in all of his movies. I think it works here but like say the scene between him and his boss and it's kind of just like no one's excited agitated you know their emotions are very low key even the boss angle oh, you know that's a good way of trying to get a raise out of me. Well done. And he's uh, saying mm-hmm. it kind of in the almost the exact same way as I'm saying it, in terms of emotional level. It's something that just struck me right away when I was watching this movie again. And that mm-hmm. same emotional level is carried almost all the way through to the movie with maybe the a few hints from Samuel L. Jackson being a little bit more emotional. But everyone else is kind of, you know, that low-key, monotone. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I I did make a note of that. And I think it carries through through every aspect of the film. I mean, it is very low-key. Like you say, nobody gets all that emotional or all that animated, except for a few key points in the movie. Bruce Willis... In his trademark style of the 2000s and beyond, where he basically is sleepwalking through the film. But it works in service of this particular character in this context. Yes. You know, the shots are well composed, but very, very simple. You know, not a lot of camera work, not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of fast editing. And everything is very, what you see is what you get. Uh, So definitely that's the style, which I really love. I love how it's composed and shot and, and written and all of that. Very simple. I mean, the last movie we did on the show Frailty, where we talked about, you know, Bill Paxton being, you know, employing sort of a minimalist style, but ultimately just sort of being too simplistic. I think this is sort of the counterpoint to that showing like, this is a guy who has a mastery of of minimalism. Like he knows how to compose exactly each shot with exactly what you need and not an ounce more, whether that's for the performance from your actor, whether that's the composition of the shot, the editing, you know, whatever, everything is just what it needs to be and no more. And I think with the subject material and, you know, cause he's done most of his films uh, have a supernatural undertone. It helps ground some of the more fantastical elements, I think, with such a simple composition. You know, nothing's overblown. There's no special effects. Everything's pretty normal. Like when you go your day-to-day life, you know, kind of talk monotone. You just having conversations with people. Everything's pretty basic. So I think it fits the subject matter really well. Like it brings it back down to earth a bit.
0: I mostly agree with you. It's just like, because from him and his family's perspective he's in a dark place his relationship with his family is not good it seems like a depressing situation come to learn that he's just has this void in his life that he will fulfill later on with what he comes to learn of himself so i can understand from an emotional state of his mind he would be that way this fits but everyone else around him this is more of problem i have with m night's films it's oversaturated Mm. with this type of emotional state that i find it sometimes hard to get enthralled with his movies Mm. because everyone's operating at the same level and then it takes away from the performance of the main character in his situation because he's in that state
1: everyone's there yeah i can see what you're saying you know you could kind of buy like his family might be all in the same state because you know they're, they're sort of in the same times, situation yeah. Yeah. yeah but everybody else yeah maybe it doesn't fit i think samuel l jackson breaks out of that a little bit he's he's not quite so monotone but and that's what i said with the exception of him in a yeah. couple of scenes right we'll definitely get to more of that so we flash back now to elijah as uh, as a young boy sometime in the 70s and he's you know he's Got a broken arm, and his mother's trying to encourage him to get out there. So, you know, she sort of puts the the dog treat on the park bench outside to get him to go outside. So this is a pretty formative scene here, I think, for this character. Again, I think we feel the sympathy for this poor kid. You know, obviously, he's got some issue with his bones at some point. His mom is trying to bolster his spirit, and I thought it was an interesting way to introduce, you know, the comic book theme here to the film so what are, what are your thoughts on this introduction or furthering of the origin story here i know it was done in the past for the characters but
0: i kind of wish that you know someone does a fan edit where he goes to the park bench opens it up and it's like uh the nightfall episode where bane breaks batman's back i mean <laughs> <laughs> here you go son <laughs> <Enjoy> this
1: <room. laughs> that would have been pretty good actually yeah.
0: <laughs> you just see the emotional wreck that he's in after that right
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No, but aside from that, a very effective way. I mean, it's awesome. You know, one of the things I really enjoy about this movie is actually the mom Mm -hmm. and her relationship with her son. I wish actually there were more scenes like this. I know she pops up at the end and she's proud of Elijah, but really the focus is not about them, their relationship, but I just felt she did such a good job. I wanted to see more of her. I loved her conversation with her son, trying to get him out and, you know, giving him a bit of a hard time but challenging him. You can't just stay here. You have to do something. You're more mm-hmm. than this. And yeah. it's interesting how he took that challenge and then warped it to become the person that he is. So I, I enjoyed these scenes quite a bit.
1: They should have named her Martha. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good scene. I, I kind of like the camera work where he's turning the comic book around in his lap. And the camera follows it around but to keep it upside down, which Mm. I think is... uh, Because totally didn't get it. Yeah, well, as we'll talk about, uh, so the next scene where we come back to present day, where Elijah's in his art gallery, Mm. and he talks about, you know, he's talking about the drawing and how the, you know, the hero has sort of the classic square jaw and all that, but the disproportionate size of Jaguaro's head to his body, you know, we kind of come back to it later, but it's part of the skewed perspective that the villain has on reality. So when that comic book is turning around, the camera's turning around with it, Like he's, we and, and see, it's, like it, he's seeing like, it upside
0: yeah. down, inverted. Exactly. Skewed perspective. Yeah, so it's brilliant setup. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, yeah. it's completely telegraphed after you see the movie, when you've, you go back and you go, oh yeah, you have all the signs he's the bad guy because he gives it right away when he says Bruce Willis has the square jaw samuel jackson in this movie like he's more long thin slender kind of like a creepy guy the disproportionate
1: yeah, yeah. size of his head right because the, of the and, afro and, then, and stuff yeah got the
0: weird afro the kramer the Kramerica industries afro going there so yeah i mean it's completely telegraphed and well played because i mean at this time still year 2000 these type of movies aren't that well popularized in pop culture so so people yeah. are not really expecting these kind of twists to happen at the end. So for this movie, M. Night's doing a really good job planting all the seeds.
1: Yeah, and this was well before the superhero craze exploded. You know, this was... You know, we had x-men i think at this point or maybe not we didn't have spider-man yet this was well before the explosion of you know what is just basically going to the movies now i really like this scene where he's in the art gallery describing the art to this guy like trying to make a sale like this is art you know it's vintage and you know, how he's describing it thought it was great and this guy's just like you know my son jeb is gonna go berserk and he's like whoa 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 should like bort <laughs> <laughs> we're out of bort license plates <laughs> should have been I love his lines here this is you know like we get Samuel L. Jackson get a little more animated he's like do you see any Teletubbies in here do you oh, see yeah. a plastic tag on my shirt do you see a little Asian kid like no get the fuck out I love this scene yeah. I thought it was great <laughs> uh, yeah
0: when Samuel L. Jackson starts insulting people yeah
1: you know fuck lot. It's, it's, it's
0: brilliant it's you're, always... you're like a girl so I want to I just see two hours
1: of that I, I'd love to see two hours of him just cussing this fucking rich asshole <laughs> <laughs> right yeah over a comic book would be fantastic so we get a little insight into his character and he's obviously not a welcoming open guy like he comes off as a bit of a snob obviously you know even as David walks in he doesn't even turn around to look he's just like we're appointment only which is a nice little snapshot of his character but he got the note there so they sit down and this is where Elijah lays it all out for him, so you know he talks about or he asks him first, like you ever been injured, you ever been sick? They, you know, he thinks he's been sick. His son's with him. He says he was in the car accident in college, which uh, ended his football career. He's got the skepticism, but then he talks about what he thinks comic books come from—the last link to their, you know, this old sort of pictorial storytelling tradition where they tell stories of these people with extraordinary people who were here to protect us. So this, I thought, was a tough part of the. Script script to sell Uh, not because the lines are poorly written but because this is a leap right for any sane person to make so how do you think he handled it and how do you think the movie handled it I mean, that's a very good question, and I agree. For any kind of sane conversation, if you
0: someone who's well-established and a businessman, savvy businessman as this guy seems to be, he's spouting this as it's part of natural human history. It's something so important that it's part of our fabric. And it kind of is. It's a way to tell tales no different than how, say, religion is told its tale and the multiple facets of religion there. So I can understand where he's coming from, so it's not too much of a leap into of the subject matter but because we come to realize he's insane it's not too much of a leap for me from a story perspective and then you see how bruce willis's character david and his son are kind of like okay yeah. i expected him to break out and the doesn't anyone do the bat to see anymore it's like they <laughs> slowly <laughs> <step away. laughs> i thought they handled it quite well it wasn't too much of a leap for me in terms of how he was selling the importance of comic books and the way it tells its stories and characters
1: yeah. Another question I have is, were you... So prior to watching this movie for the first time, if you remember, were you aware that this was the core concept?
0: No. To be honest, it's hard for me to remember, but my guess would be no. Okay.
1: The only reason I ask is, I I mean, I had no idea. You know, like when the movie, when I saw the trailers and when the movie came out, I guided, it's not like I saw it on opening night. I didn't know that this was the central conceit, but it was spoiled for me before I actually got to see the movie. And I was really disappointed that it was spoiled. Because I wanted to see that. How did you get spoiled? I think, if I recall correctly, as you've alluded to before many times, working at the movie theater. I think I just like went into the theater for you know for part of standard part of the job, and that this was the scene that was playing. Oh. Uh-huh. And so I was like, oh, shit, that's what's happening here? Well, fuck, now I really need to see this movie. But I was disappointed because I wanted to see it. And I would have loved to have been able to go through the movie and find out that this is what it was about. That doesn't really matter. But I was disappointed that I didn't get that chance.
0: It's kind of unveiled to
1: you half an hour into the movie. Yeah. And I love that. You don't yeah.
0: know this genre it doesn't feel like it and that's the special aspect of this movie
1: yeah exactly yeah it doesn't telegraph that that's what it's about you know having seen the sixth sense you're like okay it's gonna be some supernatural stuff and it totally goes in a different direction it's a bold play and i think it works great i really like this i really like how they play it after he lays out his theory and dave is just like joseph don't take another sip of that water go throw in the trash. (laughs) We're getting out of here. He did a little too much LDS. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A little too much LDS in the 60s. But he loves Italian, and so do you. So they get out of there. You know, he doesn't get any answers. And there's a little bit of a scene here between David and his wife. And I just want to talk a little bit about this for a second. So we have the wife, Audrey, played by Robin Wright. Robin Wright, Penn, at the time. And she says, you know, I've made a decision. Just want to know if you've been with anybody else. You know, since we've been having problems. You know, says, no, we get a little emotional. This is the first time we get really any emotion out of anybody in the movie here so what's your feeling on robin Wright and you know this character audrey the wife and how she kind of fits into the story
0: well i have multiple feelings of robin Wright, none of it, which <laughs> i can share here on the podcast yeah. <laughs>
1: nothing's relevant to the story right now <laughs> Yeah, I love her in House of Cards. Oh, yeah. yeah she's, she's fantastic. In
0: House she's a fantastic yeah. actor on that show. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman. This scene, I really enjoy this scene. It's like, well, you know, just tell me it doesn't matter one way or another. And then she has that emotional reaction of relief. Uh, mm-hmm. that he has not had an affair. I love that scene. I, I love the way it played out. It felt very real and grounded. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what I liked about it. I thought she did a very good job in this movie, but like my other complaint, you know, even though there's a bit of emotional motion here and a couple other little small spurts, it's still so low key and depressive. I mean, I don't know the right terminology. This this whole movie feels, it's got the emotional state of someone who's, you know, almost about to black out from. being drunk. It's just like it's it's so low key, you know, it's like they can hardly stand on their own feet. That's how bare the emotion is in this movie. And I get it because of their situation, but it just becomes tiresome when I get through additional scenes with them. Like especially when they go on their date almost uncomfortable to watch and you're starting to check your wristwatch there because it's just like, God, I need this movie to do something
1: else. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair point. I mean, it doesn't move around from different, you know, uh, states of energy, if you will. Like it is all played really low and in the scene, although I really like this scene and she does a heck of a job. Really, if you look at her performance of the whole film, she does a heck of a job with really nothing much to work with. And the reason I brought it up is, I I, I don't know, I've just kind of become more aware of it in, in recent years watching films is, you know, sometimes the female character is just there to sort of service the man's storyline. Like, she doesn't really have much of a purpose in this film other than to be, I don't want to say the love interest because that, that isn't really the case, but just to be sort of the woman that, she's just the wife, I guess, in the movie, right? She doesn't have anything else going on. You know, she's just waiting for him to kind of come back to her. Like, she's, oh, well, I made a decision. I think, you know, whatever you want to do is all good. If you want to give another go, I'm up for it. She doesn't have a lot of agency and I just, I don't know, it bugs me more and more nowadays when the female character doesn't have any agency or her only purpose is to mm-hmm. uh, be the Yeah, so, but but, uh, but she thought, does a really good job with what she has to work with, in this, especially in this scene, I think it was probably her best.
0: But I also want to point out now that at the end of the movie, when you realize it's a super, like you're at this point now where you start to realize it's a superhero movie at the end, you definitely know it's a superhero origin story. She's still kind of the crux or folly and weakness of, The superhero. She falls into that stereotype and she's the reason why Mm. he didn't really truly find himself.
1: Yeah, well let's uh, reach his potential. So hold that thought. We'll talk about it when we come to the scene because I think that's a really important piece to talk about for sure. So but let's get back into chronological order. So we get back to David's life. He's at work. So you see his security guard at a football stadium and Elijah shows up, you know, kind of pestering him and asking him questions. You know, David being nice, polite guy, probably doesn't want to come across as racist because he's a bald white dude, and, you know, that just doesn't, the optics of that are, are not good. you call him Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Jesus. <laughs> <Hey, Zoo. laughs> <Hey, Zeus>. Jesus. <laughs> that was a good line, too, actually, in my heart. So they have a conversation, like, you could to do whatever you want. You know, again, he's kind of being a nice guy, but there's that point where he brushes up against the dude in the camo jacket, has a little flash, you know, says, uh, we're gonna do some pat-downs, and they, you know, explain to him, I kind of saw a dude was maybe carrying a gun, didn't see it, but just had a picture of it in his mind. And I, I thought this was kind of interesting as well, because it starts to bring David along on the journey. It's like, well, yeah, okay, I guess... You know, I saw this thing and Elijah's like, well, maybe it's, this. you know, these guys in the comic books that have superpowers, maybe it's based just something uh, on instinct here. So this is sort of the first sense that we get that maybe David's going to kind of come along on this journey here as probing about the car accident. And we find out that Audrey was also in the car when he had the accident. So we're getting a little bit more information. Again, like I said before, we just get another thin layer of the onion getting peeled away sort of every scene that we go. And that's, again, part of what I like about this guy's style is every scene means something every scene we find something out and but every scene we also get another question that's, that's asked so i mean i don't know that there's anything else going on in the stadium scene here is there anything else that you know you kind of wanted to add oh yeah just samuel l
0: jackson screams as he tumbles down the the stairs this <laughs> is just like when the anakin cuts off his arm ah! Ah!
1: he does it so well <laughs> he does do it well yeah <laughs> could listen to that on a loop for hours. Entertaining. I think they did a good job with the sound there. It just felt like you hear every snap of every bone as he tumbles down this thing. It was just,
0: ugh. Actually, I love the shot of the glass. And I find it interesting that he has a glass cane.
1: Yeah. So I love how that shatters first. And then it leads to him shattering. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was a cool choice yeah. as well. Yeah, when we see the guy in the camel jacket, sure enough, he does have a gun tucked in his waistband there. It'd be funny if he's lying there about to pass out. Worth it. (laughs) 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 And he passes out. And then down. Yeah. (laughs) So David comes home, you know, meets his son, wants to play some football with some guys in the park, says no. They go to the basement. He's hitting the bench press. And his son's being a total douche and adding too much weight there. And he's uh, struggling through it. And I like the little conversation they have where Joseph, his son's like, hey, do you think you could beat up Bruce Lee? I love that conversation. Nice little bit of levity there. And then, you know, he finds out, you know, he keeps lifting more weight, lifting more weight, lifting more weights. So again, sort of an indication that hmm, something else is going on here. So this gets kind of a small little scene. What did you think of that interaction there? Good.
0: The only problem I have is I'm not really enjoying the performance of this kid. I mean, it's hard to, as we've talked about a few times, to find the right kid performer. He is just a kid. He's just, for some reason, just grading me the wrong way. I just want to punch his lights out for some
1: reason. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Eh, It's a little kid. I want to punch him in the face. There comes a time when a house has been so damaged by termites, right? It's they need to, like... <laughs> yeah, you house asking be have so damaged by termites that you have to punch a kid in the head. <laughs> yes. So, give the Madagal a star, right? So, there you go. <laughs> I figured we should bust some caps instead. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, but I like the scene of him, you know, the kid lying and then adding on more
1: weight, finally convincing him, okay, let's lift more. And
0: uh, It was good, you know, nice little scene to show
1: that yeah, some hidden talent there. I kind of like the kid. That's interesting that you hate him so. I kind of liked him. I thought he did a decent job here. And as we'll talk about. I was missing Jake Lloyd after the Phantom Menace. Yeah, no, they I... should have had Jake Lloyd here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> should have yeah. been Jake Lloyd. Yeah. Oh, I saw your laser sword. Anyway. Are you an angel yet? Oh, boy. He's the worst. Anyway, so Elijah's in with the doctor there, and he's just broken all up and down. The worst sounding part of the injury to me was the spiral fracture, his leg. I, I had never heard that before or I'm since. Wonder, I'm wondering if it, there is such a thing as a spiral fracture. Yeah, I was going to look at, I, I mean, the, the condition that he describes is a real condition. I'm expecting you to read medical journals. You should be a
0: doctor by the end of these podcasts.
1: I've read the medical journals, but I've read, yeah,
0: I've read the medical journals.
1: I've read the medical journals. It's more on the mental health stuff so that I can deal with you on the podcast. Oh, okay. Physical stuff, which is less important. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I guess it's a bit of a leap, but he finds a physical therapist, but it, which happens to be David's wife. It's a little too convenient. Yeah, this, type. this is the
0: one thing was like, know uh, uh, you could talk about destiny all you want, but yeah, yeah, a little too coincidental. Yeah, let bygones be bygones. They don't linger on this too much.
1: Yeah, that's true, and it's really the only case, you know, of this in the movie. The whole movie is not built around this type of coincidence. It's more of a fact-finding mission where we learn more about, well, two things. We learn about, you know, the accident, the seriousness of it. And also we get the hint, like, Elijah kind of needs to come to the realization that it was her. Exactly. Like, yeah. it, he did he wasn't injured. He gave it up for her. And this okay. was, I guess, the most economical way to give him the hint that that was the case. As opposed to David telling him later, you know, I did it for her, which would have been probably cheesy. So it's okay. I
0: guess. Yeah. I like the way he found out. It's just from Audrey's perspective, It just, you can sympathize if someone's in that business of physiotherapy. Oh, I, mm-hmm. I can't have my husband play sports because I'm a physiotherapist. Yeah, it's what yeah. I do. It's all I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah. I don't know. I found that a bit of a stretch. I, I mean I can't be with somebody who plays sports because I'm yeah, a physiotherapist. It's,
1: yeah, it's a little black it's a little too black and white. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's uh it's like who do you think's keeping you in money here, lady? Like you're glad that there are football players out there so you can fix them up. I mean shit. So we get another scene here where he's at the stadium. I don't know if this is entirely possible. It might have just been uh, M Night Shyamalan's vanity, where he likes to put himself in his own movies. Where we get David at the stadium again, and he brushes up to the, uh, against this guy and sees I find him. It, I also find it drugs.
0: interesting that he always seems to play this. F- you know, kind of creepy douchebag.
1: Well, that's just kind of the look that he, when you have a certain face that you play what you can play. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I guess it, I can relate. Yeah, exactly. You're not exactly leading man material, dude. <laughs> and neither is m Night, let's face it. So. So this is where he's kind of testing out his vision himself. He's trying to go along with it. Now, I wasn't sure at this point if I had thought that his vision was the future. Yeah, which vision are you um, talking about here? Well, he's the vision of the guy dealing drugs in the stadium. Okay. He sees the vision. The guy's going gonna to go and drop the drugs in the trash in the in the restroom. Mm-hmm. and got, Another guy's going to pick it up. Searches him. Doesn't have any drugs on him. So... I just wanted to say that now because so, we're going to talk about the visions when it comes up later, but you know, I was confused as to what he was seeing or or when he was seeing what he was seeing, is uh, I guess what I'm saying. So, But I guess uh, then
0: he just sees his visions are all based in the past. Right. So I guess that's what we find out in the train station is that he can't see, even though he has kind of instincts about someone in the present, but his actual visions are of the actions of the past.
1: Well, I guess what I was getting at was, is the movie trying to be ambiguous about it being future or past because he's trying to act on the vision right he doesn't i get the impression that he doesn't know or he thinks this is something that's going to happen so he's patting the guy down no drugs well he's confused at this point yeah he had the vision so now he's gonna
0: say okay well he thinks it's gonna happen in the future or he's about to do it so then he realizes nothing's on him because he's we know then after that point it happened in the past
1: yeah, I was just wondering if if the movie wanted it to wanted us to not understand at this point as well as David. Yeah,
0: maybe. Uh, that's a good point. So to leave it that surprise for, or that additional piece of information and revelation in the in the train sequence, or the mm-hmm. the train station sequence.
1: Right. I mean, we'll have more visions to, to handle later. So he gets called away from work. Joseph gets in a fight at school. So he goes to the school to pick him up, talking to the school nurse. And this is where we get the revelation. The nurse uh, remembers David from when he was a kid and almost drowned.
0: So again, back to your point, the script is very tight in the sense that there's no wasted scenes. Every scene, as you said, is revealing another layer, Mm -hmm. another little piece. There's nothing wasted. Again, I didn't want to go back. You know, it's kind of getting annoying with this kid. and. Okay, now the kid's got to get into trouble, he's got to take care of the kid, and we're going to get another thing with the kid later with the gun, and that might be the only one where it's kind of like the scene where I think that really stood out that didn't need to be there.
1: It, like it, where, where it, the maybe, kid's
0: talking? No, no, when the kid pulls the gun on, on the dad. Oh, okay. we'll get to We'll get to that, I guess, but at least this scene, you find out that he had no memory, but we as the audience and the character finds out that, or remembers that he had the issue with the pool, so why? Yeah.
1: yeah, no, I thought that was pretty tight. So then, that does lead kind of into the next scene that you that you alluded to here. You know, Audrey comes home and says Elijah came to see her, and they you know they kind of talk about that a bit. And then Joseph comes in with the gun. You don't like this scene? Okay, I, I don't mind the scene between David
0: and Audrey. I just found this gun thing. It just felt like a wasted. You're absolutely right. Everything to this point, there's been a purpose here. I feel there's almost no purpose to this to the scene. It's like, oh, okay, we, you know, it's just kind of a little something has to get us on the edge of our seat again. Oh my God, is he actually going to do it? He's going to shoot his dad. Nothing happens, but... It's kind of betraying what's come before. Everything, mm-hmm. there's been a purpose for every scene. Here I felt there was really no purpose. It was more just a stunt for the audience just to get people to hold their breaths for a few seconds.
1: Yeah, you could be right about that. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're you're right. You could probably cut this scene without losing anything. I would have.
0: If, yeah. if I edited this movie, this would be one of the first things to go.
1: I just love the Bruce Willis style of parenting here. It's like, yep, I'm invulnerable. And if you shoot me, I'm out of here. I'm going. I liked how that interchange was written. His lines is like, yeah, you're right, but... They really, recorded yeah. this between him and Sly uh, for Expendables 3. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Friends don't <laughs> shoot each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much better than anything that was in any of the Expendables for sure, so... <laughs> Perhaps the only purpose that this scene could have served, you know, might have been, you know, David telling Elijah to get lost, which he sort of does, but doesn't really tell him to get lost. Mm -hmm. You know, like in the next, he's like, you know, stay away from my, you know, my son tried to shoot me you know, I want you to stay away from me and my family, but it doesn't really take. So yeah, I guess you're right in that sense that it it, it could have gone. It, it probably could have gone. But, but so Elijah confronts uh, or doesn't confront David, but he talks to David again, says he saw that the dude in the camo jacket had the gun in his pants, tries to prove his vision was real. And then he accuses him of faking his injury in the car accident mm-hmm. for love. So for, uh, for his wife. So, which is basically correct, I suppose. I mean, he, he wasn't injured. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But he, this is—he also tells Elijah that he was almost drowned in in the pool there. So you know, yeah, I, I did get hurt in the car accident. I almost drowned. You're I'm wrong. just a normal guy. Yeah, yeah you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so presumably he's Elijah's uh, very shaken by this. He goes to that comic store, and I I love the scene in the in the comic store where the guy yells back, he's "Like you better not be jacking off, <laughs> <up laughs> <and laughs> Japanese <his tongue."> Yeah. <laughs> That was pretty funny. And I I like this guy. He only has a few lines, but he's just like, oh, shit, you know, doesn't...
0: He's in a no-win scenario. He needs to get rid of him. But the guy's in a wheelchair with a broken leg. So if he's rough on him or really agitates him, he could get into trouble with the police.
1: Yeah. So I feel for, I feel for the store clerk there. Should have been Kevin Smith. Should have been Kevin Smith, exactly. <laughs> Kevin Smith would have overplayed this scene though, for sure. I like this guy. He's just like, "Listen, man, I got to get some chicken in me, you know what I'm saying?" I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was a good line. <laughs> so he's trying to wheel him out. You can see the look on Samuel L. Jackson's face. He's is a good job here cuz usually Samuel needs to have some lines to get what you're saying, but his face is very emotive here. It's very Angry and upset, and Jack and all this guy's comic books here. I like the end where he just holds one up. He's like, How much for this one? This is a good scene. I like the scene. Very well played. We go to the date between David and Audrey, and what was your feeling here on the date, on this scene?
0: For the life of me, I can't really remember too much of the conversation, except for when they're talking about when did they kind of get the first feeling that it wasn't going right or something like that in, in the relationship. And again, it's just so underplayed and i get that they're trying to fill each other out and they're still struggling with the relationship and they're being very careful because they're trying to make it work again and it's a first date again you get a sense of a little bit of that nervousness yeah which is appropriate and they played they played the scene very well but because it's so low-key i really can't judge that they have any kind of chemistry with each other it's just two actors just kind of generically talking to each other yeah i think that robin robin wright does a better job here because. She has a little bit more of that nervous energy about her. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Willis is just asleep, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, I can believe that it's appropriate for this character, as as you mentioned earlier in the podcast. Hard for me to say. I'm not, I didn't really enjoy it, but it was, I guess, a necessary scene to break things up. Otherwise, everything is too direct. You're going from one thing to one thing to one thing because. After this I think we're getting to almost the, the climax of the movie.
1: Yeah, we are. I, I liked how the conversation started where he like tells her that his favorite color is rust. It just <laughs> so uh it just seemed like such a bleak thing to say. She's like, Rust? Like never nobody's ever said that in the history of ever. My favorite color is rust. That was a good line and also a, you know, tonally appropriate for the film. But I think we did need could have done the Superman scene, you know, like there. Is like, Do you like rust? I like rust very much, David. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was necessary to see, we haven't seen enough of their relationship and it's not, you know, the relationship really isn't totally critical, but I kind of liked how they sort of, you know, laid it out there for each other. Like, you know, when did you think, you know, we weren't going to make it and all of that stuff. And, and they, and they went through that, but more, I think it was important for David to, cause he articulates to her, like something's. Still not right. Yeah, something's not right. Uh, you know, and he and he says it to her, and in saying it to her, he kind of admits it to himself. Yeah. Right. So I think that that's why this scene is important because it I think that pushes his actions in the next scene when they get home and there's a little interchange with the babysitter, which is kind of funny because it's sort of mundane, which is what would happen. But he listens to the kryptonite. Yeah. Yeah. The kryptonite conversation, the voicemail from uh, from Elijah, where you know he you know waters basically his kryptonite.
0: That's actually kind of funny now. Now that we talked about this color thing, I'm wondering if that's that was cause leading to Kryptonite. I'm wondering if that was just a little play on words homage to Superman the movie. Oh, conversation maybe conversation because you know what is your favorite color? Because you know that fairly famous scene in Superman because it's part yeah. of the story, right? So I'm wondering if M Night threw it in there as a, not really a homage but a little reference.
1: Or yeah, a starting totally.
0: point, kind of interesting.
1: And that totally could be, and you know, knowing that uh, he's a huge fan of comic books and and superhero movies, that that certainly could be the case. So this is where we get the, after he listens to that, we get the flashback to the car accident when they're kids and the car's turned over in the middle of the street. You know, Audrey's been flung across the the road and he's just standing there and he's totally, oh no, she's in the car and he's totally fine. And he rips open the car door to get to Audrey and he's totally fine, she's injured. And it's a little bit comical, but when like a car pulls up and is like, hey, buddy, are you okay? And he looks up, he doesn't say anything, but he kind of has a realization, like, yeah i'm totally fine nothing's wrong with me but he sort of had a bruce willis dumbfounded look on his face
0: the one thing i didn't like about the scene though i felt it was poorly filmed this is the one scene where i feel just the way it was shot it wasn't that it was kind of fuzzy because it's kind of a memory it's just that it just wasn't clear as to what was happening for the audience Mm. because i remember when i first watched this movie i was I didn't get that he ripped the car open, car door open. It wasn't very apparent, hmm. even though when you watch it a few times and it's like, okay, yeah, he did rip open a car door with bare hands, but it just almost, you know, on first glance, and if you're not really, really paying attention, you don't realize that he was in the car, but it's just a little confusing to me. It's not clear. And that, that's, I have a problem with this, the way this was shot.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's interesting because I kind of felt the same. I've seen the movie a lot, you know, many times and I don't ever remember him ripping open the car door either. You know, when I saw it this time, I was like, it's just like you said, okay, well, yeah, obviously he rips the car door open. So yeah, it seems, I don't know, stylistically inconsistent. Maybe they had the second unit filming this one or something. So yeah, it doesn't quite, it's almost like it's from a different movie. It is. How it's filmed. And I don't mind that it
0: kind of looks different and how it feel because we're looking at it through as a memory. It's fuzzy. It's not like we're seeing a present event, right? So this is a stylistic choice. I have a time problem, and it's supposed to be chaotic, memory chaotic, no problem there. For the audience's perspective, it's just, I felt it could have been a bit better, a bit clearer, a bit more dramatic. I didn't like these scenes at all.
1: Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, has I guess as a flashback, I mean, thankfully, it's not too critical in and what happens next. But he's kind of admitting to himself what the truth is now. So he calls Elijah back and admits to him that he wasn't injured in the car accident. He's never been injured. Basically admitting to Elijah, yeah, you're right about me. They will accept the truth. And Elijah says, or oh, he asks him what he's supposed to do. Elijah tells him to go, you know. Go somewhere where people are. He's basically telling them, go look for some trouble, which he does. So he goes to the train station and he brushes into people. And, you know, again, part of the stylistic choice here is everybody that he gets a vision from. They all have a brightly colored piece of clothing with the guy in the camouflage jacket in the stadium. Originally, M. Knight was wearing that jacket and the stadium was blue, I think, and then laid in the red jacket. And all the guys in the stadium here are all wearing uh, bright colors. And we get a taste of the visions that he has of these guys. So I've got my thoughts on the visions, but I'll let you go first as to what he sees here and what the implications are. Well, before we get
0: to the vision, I was kind of hoping they'd have a little training montage. He
1: doesn't have to rip (laughs) off Rocky, but
0: maybe he could have ripped off Punch Out and he could have been pulling, you know, that little training montage with little Mac and his trainer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> to that music, right? Is he running across the street, pulling
1: him right in his wheelchair or something? Oh, man. Yeah, it's like tied to his waist, like yeah. on a bungee cord or something, yeah. running up the hill.
0: Ah, that would have been great. But
1: that would have been good. That, that would have been Fucking lovely. wheelchair turns over on a curve. <laughs> turns into a
0: spoof he's you know he goes down the stairs just like oj i told you they called me mr glass bitch
1: (laughs) be careful it's like wrapped up in fucking saran wrap and shit bubble wrap yeah bubble wrap that's what i meant yeah Uh...
0: But anyways, the visions, yeah, I liked it. It was very effective. I like the way it was filmed, you know, slow building. I love how the music starts to really get to a little bit more of a mm-hmm. high tempo. Finally, it's like I've been waiting, I've been waiting, I've been waiting. A little bit of a burst of energy and now we're getting a dramatic dramatic buildup. And then I like it how he just kind of spreads. It. I love, first of all, I wanted to say he also, I love the way his outfit was with the raincoat. It was kind of hiding his himself in a little bit. And I love the way his hands just stretch out and he starts to, you know,
1: touch <laughs> Not like touch people, but <laughs> touch people. Yeah. He wasn't groping people. That's his superhero name. I'm the Groper. Yeah, the Groper. <laughs> That's a mystery man uh, superhero, for sure. Groper. He <laughs> just can't buy a break. Of the walk. What's your superpower? Well, I, I touch people's private.
0: I <laughs> have visions.
1: <laughs> no, I
0: thought this was... This was great and the visions themselves. I can't remember each and every one except the main one. I think I remember the first one, the lady stealing jewelry in the store. Yeah.
1: There was the dude date raping yeah, the, date. Oh, yeah. the drunk the, girl. Date
0: yeah. raping the drunk girl and then he couldn't do anything, ended up with the family, parents, or something. There's one more I can't remember. Oh yeah, I think it was one more where Old, another group of teenagers throwing yeah. a beer bottle. Oh, that fucking shit happened to me all the time. So
1: Yeah. No white pervert was saving your ass when somebody was telling you to go back to Africa. So. motherfuckers. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I think those were it. Funny thing is is like I don't mind the different variety of crime and I guess that the most shocking one had the murder that's chooses. I just kinda wish they they were a bit more dramatic. The other vision.
1: Like more severe crimes, you mean?
0: Well, they could have had done a slow build up, right? Mm-hmm. And not that, you know, date rape is not a severe crime, but it's just like it's the way it was filmed. Again, another problem where it's not dramatic enough. And mm. I kind of wish it was just a little bit more chaotic and a bit more, as you said, severe. And then finally, the last one is the murder. And that's the one. Maybe yeah. he couldn't act on the other severe crimes because he wouldn't be given the opportunity because there were families train station, uniting friends and family. But the janitor was the lonesome body go after him. So,
1: yeah. And it escalated pretty quickly. I mean, uh, again, not to say, not to minimize the guy who raped the girl at the party there because obviously that's a terrible thing. It escalated like, the girls stole some jewelry and and then there's a dude who like threw a baseball bottle like, somebody yeah threw a beer bottle oh and then this guy killed a whole you know whole house full of people it hockey sticked pretty quickly there but what i really did enjoy about this scene is i thought that this was One of the best representations of one of the problems that Superman would have, which is like, how do you pick? Because you can't be, you can't save save everybody. So, how do you pick? And I thought it'd be uh, be
0: interesting commentary on humanity. He touched every, like, as everybody touched him, he
1: had a. Yeah, so everybody had something. Some crime. Yeah. 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 He he fully
0: embraced his powers. And it's like, that sends him almost into a spiraling. That'd be be maybe an interesting ending.
1: Mm, After this, then he goes
0: to a a different place. And then he starts seeing everything and just almost collapses because he can't believe the inhumanity of humanity.
1: Yeah, that would have been an interesting choice, actually. I think that would have worked. That's um, more of a Twilight Zone ending. Yeah, that is more of a Twilight Zone ending, for sure. So, But he has the vision of the janitor invading the guy's house, sees a vision of that guy basically dead. So he follows the janitor to the house to which he goes back to the scene of the crime, I guess, because he's a pervert. And, you know, he sees his vision had come true. The the man of the house, the dad or whatever, is dead, tossed down a staircase. So he manages to rescue the kids there and then, you know, goes upstairs, sees the wife tied to the... Radiator. The bad guys nowhere to be seen. Steps out on the balcony, turns around, and there's the there he is. He Gets tossed out into the pool, and again we know the water is 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 his kryptonite. Starts to starts to drown. That looked like a pretty terrifying situation, actually. Where he's not only does he fall into the pool, but he's got that tarp closing in. That's a great shot. Him. Yeah, that's a really good shot. Yeah, because mm-hmm. at first you don't realize like what exactly happened, and then as you see it, it's like oh shit. Like
0: yeah, it's happening slowly because it's slowed yeah. down for the audience, and you just see the edges keep slipping off. The yeah off the edges of the pool lower and i love the rain as well mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. a jeopardy for him so it's just it, yeah. it's pretty gripping one scene it's like really on your seat
1: yeah it's it, you are in the edge of your seat and yet it's still very slowly playing out like there's not quick cuts or tons of action but it's uh, very well built the tension here so the kids save him from pool and then he goes and takes care of business I assume he killed the bad guy there. It looked like that chokehold ended in a neck break. No, 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 yeah, it was a neck break. You definitely got the little silent snap. Yeah, like the the real, like the last jerking of the head to the side. So, So Buddy's dead. Fortunately, not too late to save the wife, but he saves the kids. And so then he goes home and I really like that scene where he walks in or he comes home and you just see him hanging his raincoat or the tarp or whatever in the closet there. Like Batman hanging up his cape. I really like that shot. And then it's a little weird. He picks up his wife and there's that it's kind of a I think it's a skillfully done shot because it's all done in one take there. There's no cuts where he's carrying her upstairs and sort of ethereal type of shot where he's you know, she's almost floating in his arms there. And then a call back to an earlier scene where, you know, he says to her he had a bad dream. And, you know, now that he has purpose, she's allowed back in his life, which again kind of goes back to my problem with the female characterization here. But, you know, whatever. I guess it's all good. They're having breakfast the next day. Joseph comes into the kitchen and David pushes the paper towards the son there, you know, letting him know that, you know, you were right. But let's let's keep this on the down low. So what did you think about the climax there and then, you know, the scene right through to the, the kitchen where they're having breakfast? I like the scene
0: where it's a slow build where rescuing kids by uh, infiltrating the house and uh, and then you get the little surprise—the guys behind just water water watered tarp. Very effective and skillful shots and dramatic build-up. And then, yeah, the the neck break. Even though it's a short scene where they're struggling, I think I think it was well played. I like the music playing over it—the heroic theme. Finally, mm-hmm. blaring for him. It's a heroic moment. It's a, it's very satisfying. The bad guy, you know, dies. Too bad the mom, but the kids get saved. When he goes home, yeah, he's got the rage, or It's like I finally, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: finally. <laughs> Finally. After
0: all of these years, <laughs> killing a man. I just
1: killed this motherfucker. I have a huge chub right now. <laughs> yeah. Call me the Rager. Right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> they call me the Red Rocket. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was fine. I mean, but I agree with you. Yeah. With respect to her role, there's nothing there. It's unfortunate, but I guess she's necessary for this story. Kitchen scene, fine. I don't mind how they use the newspaper story. I like the drawing and how the kids who he saved know his face so mm-hmm. he's just kind of like the masked stranger coat and, that, and that's kind of cool and that's very superhero-ish and it's you know all the pieces are falling in place as a superhero origin story and it's very effective it's just the only thing i still want to punch that fucking kid looks <laughs> up and he's like oh finally dad Fuck you, you little-. Like, like kid
1: i'm gonna throw this fucking pancake into your face yeah shut but- up Yeah, pretty much. Just don't like the kid. The scene is effective. I like the kid, but whatever. We already had that conversation. So, okay. So uh, we get to the final scene of the movie where David shows up at the exhibition at Elijah's art gallery. And, you know, there's lots of people there. looks like it's going to be great. David meets Elijah's mom and she's explaining that same picture to him. And she's like, you see the villain's eyes. They're larger than the other characters. They insinuate a slightly skewed perspective on how they see the world just off normal. And that that gives it it, away right there. Yeah, that gives it away right there. That's the whole movie where we you know we often see Elijah reflected in uh, a mirror or upside down because he has that skewed perspective uh, on the world, as we will find out shortly. So they meet up again. David says, "You know, you're you're right." You know, Elijah says, asks him, "You know, do you still feel the sadness?" He says, "No." Uh, So it's like you finally found your place in the world. And this is where we shake hands. He says, and then because he touches him for the first time. Then we see the visions of the four crimes that he's responsible for. So he's in the airport, the plane explodes, the the hotel fire, and the train wreck, because we see him getting out of the train. So he so now we know that he was responsible for all of that. And, you know, Elijah's saying, he now that we know who you are, I know who I am. I'm not a mistake. He's accepted his role as the villain he's always known he was the villain it's kind of a goofy line but i like it at the end he's like yeah i should have known because the kids they called me mr glass i, I, love, I, that. I love that line too well, yeah it's good yeah it's corny but yeah it fits <laughs> yeah it's it's corny but it it totally fits yeah it totally fits what i feel doesn't fit are the weird captions that yes. come up here yeah after that it's like yeah it's like the movie of the week yeah the, the lifetime week. movie of yeah. the week yeah fuck I hate movies that wrap up a story
0: with, you know, verbiage, written yeah. verbiage. You're like, this is what happened to this character. This is what happened to this character. What happened to this character? I mean, I don't mind that in a biographical movie. I'll let it slide. But in a movie like this, and, uh, it's just, oh, it's just such a downer when filmmakers resort to that cheap trick of finishing Yeah, the movie.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so weird. Like, it would have been such a powerful scene if he's just leaving as he's, you know, yelling after him. Like, they called me Mr. Glass and he just, like, walks out. That would have been such an awesome way to end it. And it's totally unnecessary. I don't know why why he did this. I've been trying to figure it out, why he made the choice. And I can't, I disagree with it no matter what. But I was just like, okay, well, I could disagree with it. But I want to know what his thinking process was. And I just couldn't figure it out.
0: There might not be anything. It's just, this is the way he wanted to end it and simple that. And I think it was a mistake. It was a mistake, for sure.
1: So that's the end of Unbreakable. So I think we talked about, you know, the style of, of the film here. And I think we've gone into that performances we've talked about well how about uh, bruce willis himself yeah let's talk about bruce willis well why don't you start us off
0: because we talked about you know he's An interesting character, Bruce Willis, in reality. But he's pretty he's become pretty one note and generic as time has gone on. Whether he's trying to purposely move away from energetic and over the top performances, because that's who John McClain was, and that's the role that's defined him. So he's Mm -hmm. had to kind of now become the complete opposite, right? It's like George Costanza. Yeah. Yeah. If that wasn't the right way, doing the opposite might be the correct (laughs) path, right? So maybe that's what he's trying to do. You watch that episode as I. He says, "That's it." I don't know. In this movie, it makes sense because of the struggles he's having in his family life. But on a general side, I mean, I just bring a lot to the table in this. And it fits for the character, fits for the movie. But I just kind of wish he was a bit more charismatic. But I don't know if that would have been betraying.
1: Yeah, I don't think that would have fit if he had been charismatic in the context of this film. I mean, it's kind of like you know, yeah, exactly. He's depressed. He doesn't have a place. In life, Like he's the same, like Elijah is the same in the sense that like, you know, he doesn't know who he is or where he's supposed to be. Is he a mistake? But at least Elijah had a little bit more passion because he thought he was trying to, at least he was trying to find his place. He thought he knew what was wrong. Whereas David doesn't have a sense of it at all. Right, so but the thing here, he doesn't even know that something's wrong. It's just something's wrong, but he hasn't admitted it to himself. So I think that it's kind of like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Yeah, it's Keanu Reeves, but for that role, that performance works. You know, like, if he did this, you know, he does the same thing in Die Hard 4 and 5, and it's just boring. But here, with a skilled filmmaker who knows what he's doing, his performance in Sixth Sense was much the same, right? Where he was just very monotone and understated. It fits for the film, so like I could give him a pass.
0: But I'm just wondering if a more seasoned or a better actor would be able to bring a different layer to a performance while still being slightly modern, slightly low. Because and you and I,
1: I, you probably could. Yeah, you probably could. Right? But like the good thing bit, about
0: a little bit more emotive behind the eyes. You know, like I know he's emotive behind the eyes when he realizes that Elijah was you know, the real villain. I could see that yeah. shock on his face, but the rest of the movie I didn't get a sense of anything else
1: happening. Well, I think there isn't anything else happening there because he doesn't have much else going on behind. He's just dead inside. He doesn't feel anything about anything. He doesn't really care about much of anything, right? And he one thing I like about Bruce Willis's face is it's very sullen, you know, it's long, it's a little I don't want to insult it's not insulting, Is Not droopy in a bad way, but you know what I mean? He doesn't look naturally like he's a super happy dude. And that look works really well for the role. So I guess you could find a guy, sure, you could have found, you know, plenty of actors who have more raw talent than Bruce does. But I think the look is right because it's also that chiseled face, which we talked about before for the hero but a depressed hero, and that's a tough look, I think, to nail down.
0: And you're right. I'm not going to argue with that. For this role, he does a good job. It's just... But you
1: are arguing!
0: Yeah, I'm... <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, it's just something that's always bugged me and still bugs me about Bruce Willis today. It's just like he just feels like he's done the same thing. Like he's like done what ever since Harrison Ford did witness. Oh no, not, not witness. The fugitive. He's played Richard Kimball in every single movie except for maybe Indiana Jones and the crystal skull. He was okay there, but you know, he's kind of played the same performance. Over and over and over again.
1: That's right. Yeah. So
0: yeah. So different than his roles before, and that garnered him a lot of critical, positive critical attention. Wondering here if Bruce Willis is kind of doing the same thing. That could be. And ever since then, he's been kind of. We can call it greedy and lazy. You can call it sleepwalking, or he's trying to purposely move himself away from all of his earlier roles and saying, "Well, you know, I can't do that because if I do that, I become John McClane again."
1: That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that, but it is very much. The Harrison Ford syndrome here I think for sure
0: well I think that actually I have a question for you yeah so this movie started as kind of a mystery slash thriller yeah and wrapped inside is a superhero movie. yeah so how effective of a superhero movie or a mystery thriller into these two different genres is this movie how effective is it yeah how effective is it in those different genres
1: you know not being a huge aficionado of the mystery thriller I think it works great there because as we've said every scene is tight and works to pull away another layer and still ask more questions to drive you further down into the mystery slow burn you know i feel the tension builds organically and at the right pace through it, so from that criteria, I think it's a I think it works great as a mystery thriller. You know, again, not having watched a whole lot of that genre, I think it works really well as a superhero movie. I think it's a great origin story because we don't often get, I guess, in the one. I mean, we see superhero origin stories. I mean, we know those characters. Like, I mean, we've seen Bruce Wayne's parents get shot a thousand times. You know, we've seen Kal El get packaged up into a spaceship and shot away from Krypton a thousand times. You know, I've seen, you know, we've seen Spider-Man bit by a spider a hundred times. Like, we kind of know what's coming, and this just really pays tribute to the entire origin of us not knowing what's going to be and that person not knowing what's going to be right in a world where superheroes don't really exist you know the marvel or dc sense it's a different it's a different scene so yeah it's not really a superhero movie as we know it but i think that's why it works because yeah, that, it I think isn't all of those things
0: it, correct and I, and I also think it different than other superhero movies in extent batman maybe not uh, maybe The one similarity is the fact that he was always kind of a, had this talent and he never knew it. Mm -hmm. And then the buildup is him on the journey, finding out that he is a superhero and he had a special talent. And I'm sure that's been done a dozen times in genres before the action movies or martial art movies or whatever, you you name it, it's probably done. But I, I really appreciated how different it was here. Like he didn't really needed to have a tragic event Personally, to him, like he was involved in right. a train accident, but it wasn't something like my parents were murdered or right. my sister was kidnapped. or I, I I failed my school paper, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, something along those lines that, that was so traumatic for him. He was just something was just not right in his life. It was just he was missing, and I felt that was a bit. It's hard to say if that's unique, because I said, I, I have recollections that I can't pinpoint that that's been done before in the revelation of destiny. But I appreciate it here for this genre. Yeah. It, it feels yeah. different than fresh than all the other superhero staples
1: i mean i like the fact that you know whether it's true or not in the context of this universe where you know elijah tries to explain that the you know the comic books are a continuation of this ancient form and these beings exist just not as you know big and commercialized and wearing the tights and stuff but like they're there it's a version of what is real which is these people who are extraordinary who are here to protect us uh, and I thought that was it, you know, that was interesting because he's basically just born different. You know, he wasn't zapped by gamma rays or anything like that. His parents weren't shot in front of him. He just was different from the start, as was Elijah. They were just born that way and then became what they were. So I mean I I appreciated that. There's there's certain simplicity there as well, which I, I appreciate. So Before we get to our final segment where we talk about the rare antiquities, do you think this would work? Like, let's say this never came out in 2000. They make this exact movie today in the midst of, you know, Marvel movie madness. How do you think it's received? The problem
0: now is today that these type of movies with the surprise twist, as we talked about, is is so commonplace. Yeah. that I don't think it would be effectively received as it was in back in 2000. However, if that wasn't a trope, because now it's a trope, yeah. if that trope does not exist, I think it would be very effective and very fresh. Mm. Because I'm tired of seeing overpowered superheroes just beating each up. other and yeah. beating dudes up and having these massively epic battles. This is a personal story, and I appreciate it. Yeah, It's small yeah. in scope and very different, as I said. So that's where I appreciate this movie on that level the most. And that's why I kind of <sighs> it's hard to hearken back that's why i like superman the movie in a sense it's still very grandiose that movie but it's very still mm-hmm. has a lot of personal it's on a personal smaller scale level with respect to Superman and his relationship with lois lane and i think that that's a special aspect of that movie and it's not over the top it's not too many things happening mm-hmm. it's him mm-hmm. and it's just her and it has lex Luthor and missiles and that's it and he saves the day and it's awesome and you don't get that in movies today yeah. you, you You have to have, the superhero has to have, you know, five billion problems happening at the same time, next to impossible odds and so many distractions and other you know 20 different villains popping their heads in the lead up to the seat even though superman yeah. did have that lead up to the seat zod so bad choice of maybe not the best example but that's why i like this movie.
1: yeah it's a yeah, it, it, smaller it, scale than yeah. that and i and so, I like that yeah it's a personal story it's superman the movie is a very personal story not just with you know lois his relationship with lois lane but also his relationship with you I know mean, a lot of the movies him um, discovering his heritage right and that is yeah i completely agree with you that That's part of what makes that movie great. It's part of what uh, works well for this movie. So, last bit before we get into the last segment is we're not, unless you want to go into it, because who knows, people are going to listen to this. uh, So, I don't want to do any spoilers. This is M Night Shyamalan has been quoted as saying this was his, this is his favorite of his movies and he's always wanted to do a sequel or a follow up and now it looks like it may actually happen. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, but I don't want to spoil anything for you. I don't know nothing, so don't spoil it. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say this: if you want to go ahead and go watch the movie Split. You should probably go and do so. Yeah, I haven't seen Split, and I want to. Okay, so watch that and avoid spoilers. I will, but for God's sake, it better not be fucking shared universe bullshit. Just go watch it, and then we can talk about it afterwards. I haven't seen it, but I know what happens. So, oh, that's going to suck for you. Well, I found out because I wasn't going to watch it, right? So I was just reading an article and whatever, and then they spoiled it for me. And I was like, well, shit, I wish I hadn't known that. But why wouldn't you want to watch it? I just like M. Night Shyamalan's over the years it just like, yeah, I'm not really interested. And stuff anymore no fair enough but, and we talked yeah. about that right so. but i read the thing and i was just like well i wasn't going to watch it before so if i hadn't known the spoiler i would never have wanted to watch it but now that i know the spoiler i wish i hadn't known it and wanted to watch it before anyway
0: this particular one has really
1: good word of mouth so it does yeah uh, so um I'm, I'm sitting in the theater i'll wait till his netflix and then i'll i'll catch it it has been fairly well reviewed okay so let's uh jump to the final segment of the show harry would you recommend Unbreakable, and is it a rare antiquity? Oh, 100% would
0: recommend this. It's one of M. Night's best, if not the, his best uh, movie. It's also a great thriller, a great superhero movie talked about its strengths and some of its weaknesses, but the weaknesses don't detract from its positivity. It's it's a high recommend. As for A Rare Antiquity, I struggled with that question. I will give it a bare pass for A Rare Antiquity because uh, it's fresh with respect to the superhero genre, but not fresh with respect to the mystery thriller and surprise twist. end. because if this was The Sixth Sense, then I would say that probably could be A Rare Antiquity. did that first and he's been replicating that formula ever since and including this his follow up. So, mm. but because it's fresh for the genre, because he put in, you could either classify it as we talked about as a superhero, I still feel there's enough here and enough difference to still classify it as something that's special.
1: I think I largely agree. Recommendation, uh, 100%. This is a really good watch. Well filmed, well acted, well directed, well written. I mean, it's a very, very tight movie. And in this era of, you know, the summer blockbusters, which are just totally sloppy in comparison to this, every scene works, every line works. Every performance, for the most part, works really, really well. So yeah, watch this movie. It's uh, excellent. Is this a rare antiquity for me? Less on the fence about it than you. I absolutely think this is a rare antiquity, simply because of how tight it is and because of the different take on the superhero genre. If this was made today, it would probably be even more fresh, just considering what we've seen. And this came be- before the madness that we got to sit through now. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's tight. It's entertaining. Good performances just a really well-made movie uh, all around and original material Uh, as that makes rare antiquity for me so that wraps up unbreakable for us harry thanks for doing that what do you have in store for us next time Hmm, forgot me have you Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) next time we will look at frank oz's
0: 1991 comedy what about bob oh my
1: What about Bob? Yep. Okay. Is Bill Murray in that movie? That's Bill Murray and Richard That's Dreyfuss. what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've never seen that. Are you serious? I, I don't think so. I don't think I, I can see. I think I can see the poster in my mind. So maybe I have seen it, but I don't... Well, I'll report back to you when we do the show.
0: Yeah, no, it's I have not seen this one long, long time. It was on my list of ones to look at and go back and revisit. So I'm itching to watch this one ever since I thought about it. So
1: and put it on the list. So can't wait. Yeah, no, that'd be good to get a comedy in there. We need some, we need some lightness for sure. So that'll be awesome. All right, all right, man. Well, thanks for doing the show, and we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. All right. You better not be jacking off to the Japanese comics, I swear to God.